Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Now here's this week's episode with our lead pastor, Corey Engel. Well, good morning. How are we? Let's all do that together. Woo! <laughs> all right. Well, we're glad. Uh, I'm glad you're here. And the snow outside there is a little disheartening for a golfer. Uh, but but I'll, I'll endure. This is Montana. And uh, it'll probably be 75 tomorrow. I don't know. Guys, we are in the middle of a message series on the biblical feasts of Israel. If you uh, open up your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23 and you begin to read, you will find that God lays out seven feasts for the nation to practice every year. And these feasts are not necessarily like gatherings to eat, although there was often gatherings to eat, but they were celebrations. They were holidays. These were were times when the, the nation would kind of stop and think about the most important things, just like we do on the 4th of July or Thanksgiving or Christmas we, we gather together and we remember. And that's what these feasts were all about. We have talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've talked about the Feast of uh, the, or the Passover meal or the Seder meal. We talked about the Feast of First Fruits on Easter. And today we're talking about the Feast of Weeks. Now, some of you, when you came in, you didn't get one of these. We, we ran out and we needed to print some more. If you didn't grab one of these, would you just raise your hand and, uh, and Dar will... We'll, bring one to you. Make sure you have these because we're going to, I'm going to be reading a lot from this because there's a lot of really valuable content here to understand what is actually happening with the Feast of Weeks. Now, and I kind of go back because some of you guys have been here in all of them. Some of you, uh, maybe this is your first time in this series. So you're kind of jumping in in the middle, but there's a little uh, chart up here on the screen. And these seven feasts are laid out in spring feasts and fall feasts. And there's kind of a bridge feast in the middle. And when you see all of the feasts together, when we get to the end of all of these feasts, I think you're going to understand why I would call this feast a bridge feast. Okay. It's bridging between the fall feast or the spring feast and the fall feast. Okay. But you have the Passover, which is really the start of the spring feasts. That next day starts a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they don't eat uh, any leavened bread. They get rid of it, and basically they, they only eat unleavened bread and, you know, the rest of their food. And then that leads a couple days later to the Feast of first fruits, which is where they, this is what we talked about on Easter, where they go out into their barley field on the Passover day, that, that Passover Eve. They set apart a portion of their crop. Unto God as the first fruits of that harvest. They don't harvest it just yet, but they tie a ribbon around it. It is sanctified and set apart unto the Lord. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go and they cut it down, right? That would have been the day when Christ was crucified or when he was was killed. And then they actually take that uh, crop when they've cut it down, they put it in a basket or they wrap it, they set it aside and uh, basically make sure it is not touched until they go to present it at the temple on the Sunday following the Sabbath, which ultimately then is presented before God. They raise it up and wave it before God. It is a symbolic of Jesus ultimately being raised from the dead on that very day and uh, and is 
Basically, Jesus is our first fruits offering. It's God's best for us. And then the idea behind it is, well, what do we offer to God? Now, that's the spring feast. The next feast is the feast of Pentecost, okay? And the reason why it's called Pentecost is because it is, uh, or it's called Shavuot. It is a feast of weeks. In this next chart, you'll see something important. So if we go to that, please. Here we go. So you've got Nissan number first, Nissan one, <laughs> Nissan number one, the first of Nissan. Okay. Then you have 14 days, which gets you to the eve of the Pesach, or, which, or the Passover meal. Then you have the Seder meal. The next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you have the Feast of First Fruits. When you cut down that feast, that first uh, harvest of your barley, when you cut that down, that actually starts a countdown called the Countdown of the Omer. Seven weeks, which is seven days of seven times, which is 49 days. So 49 days, then is the Shavat, which is the Feast of Weeks seven weeks. Shavuot just in Hebrew means weeks. Okay. And because it is 50 days from the Passover. So 50 days from the Passover, 49 days from the first cutting Passover happened the night before. So it's 50 days. Greek translate, Greek translators often called this feast Pentecost. Okay. And it's the Greek word for 50. So understand that Pentecost was what was happening or what was being celebrated in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the disciples and the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Okay? That's what was happening in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks was a pilgrimage feast. It meant that you would have to travel from your home and you would go and make an offering to the priest at the temple. The Feast of First Fruits was a pilgrimage, or the Passover, kind of that whole series was a pilgrimage feast. The Feast of Weeks was a pilgrimage feast. And then those fall feasts would be a pilgrimage feast. They would travel to uh, on the Day of Atonement. In your notes, many times, and I'll just read this, while they would travel, so they would get their, their, their offering together and they would set off for the temple. Well, all of Israel has to go to the temple, right? So from all of the towns, people would start to, you know, go out driving together. They're all going to the same place. All of the roads would start to fill with travelers. And these processions, they would, you know, get in line. And now you've got these long lines of, you know, travelers. People would begin to sing. They begin to, you know, praise God. There would be a worship of God happening as they were making their way to the temple. And this is one of the reasons why there were so many different nationalities in Jerusalem on the Feast of Weeks, on Passover, right? So in Acts chapter 2, remember, they heard everyone speaking in different tongues, and they're like, man, we're, we're all from different places, but we're hearing it in our own language, right? They were all from different places because as as Jews from the different places, they were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so they would have come, and in that 
mix of all these people from different places and different nationalities, they were there. That's when God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did they celebrate the Feast of Weeks? Well, the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot was a lot like the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was a barley uh, offering. So the barley would come ripe early, and it was connected to this idea of uh, Passover and the first fruits being offered unto God. It was about honoring God with our first fruits. This is also, in many ways, a first fruits offering or a first fruits celebration. Only it's not a barley, it is of wheat. So when this Feast of Weeks was getting closer, uh, what you would see, they're counting the Omer. They're counting down. Every day they would have a different reading, kind of a different focus. For 49 days, that 49th day was ultimately the celebration, or it was the 50th day from the Passover, which would, that's why they called it Pentecost, that they would then take their first fruits of wheat harvest, they would cut it down, they would beat out all of the kernels of the wheat, they would grind it into flour, and they would make it into two leavened loaves of bread. Some of you guys are wondering, what's the bread doing on the table? This ultimately would be what they would bring to the priest to offer. And on that Pentecost day, on the Feast of Shavuot, they would bring their two loaves of bread, and the priest would take it and raise it up before the Lord and wave it again like he would have the previous uh, first fruits offering. Okay? So this would be very much what the people would have done. Now, it was leavened bread. It wasn't unleavened bread. There's some symbolism behind why it would include leaven. Um, we're not going to get into that in depth. Some people have come and asked me about it afterwards. So if you're really intrigued about maybe why uh, it would be leavened bread offered instead of unleavened bread, come and talk to me after the service, and we can, uh, we can unpack that. But the big question is, what ultimately is the feast celebrating? At its at its core, the people had to travel to Israel. They would have to bring their first fruits baked into bread uh, and offer it two loaves to the priest who would wave it before the Lord. What's that all about, right? It's important for us to connect the dots here because there are some rich, rich truths inside of what was actually being remembered, okay? The two loaves represent the law. They are celebrating on the 50th day after the Passover. They are celebrating something in their national history that was unbelievably important. They were celebrating their anniversary. Not the anniversary of the Passover. That would happen every year they're actually celebrating what they would understand to be the marriage, the consummation of their marriage with God. Okay? How many of you guys have ever forgotten your anniversary? Anybody? I almost did this year. Almost. And it hasn't come yet. But just the other day, we were having a conversation, Tasha and I were. And... uh 
And she said something like, it's hard to believe because we were talking about the church and, and some of the people that we knew from way back in the day. And it's hard to believe that we started almost 20 years ago in December will be our 20th anniversary as a church. And it blows my mind that it's just gone like that. I mean, it's, it's gone so fast. And Tosh and I got married in April uh, after we started the church. So we were like the first wedding at Harvest Springs. So it was, uh, it, was a, it was an unbelievable season. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, April 20th is like a week and a half away. I better not forget that because it had not even crossed my mind. And then I was kind of saved when Tosh says, well, it really hasn't crossed my mind either. <laughs> <laughs> the Feast of Weeks was a remembrance of the anniversary of God's marriage between Israel and himself. And I hope to be able to help you see that because the law was an important part of the marriage ceremony. Okay? So I'm going to flip over to the back, and we're going to talk about Jewish wedding traditions. Okay? Jewish weddings and their traditions of how, like engagements and those kind of things, it's not like it is today. Like if you were a young man in Jewish culture, you wouldn't get to go scope out the cute chicks and then go pursue them. It, it just ain't, it isn't going to happen in that culture. Do you know who arranged your marriage? It was your dad. Your father would go and arrange a marriage between you and a young lady. It was set up by the father of the groom. The father of the groom might find a, a, a young gal somewhere, and the father would then go and approach that young gal, uh, th that young gal's father, and he would negotiate a price. What price would be paid? Let me just read this. In Jewish culture, this is the Mohar, okay? In Jewish culture, a father would arrange a bride for his son by paying a price, a Mohar, to the bride's family in order to negotiate the betrothal and, in essence, purchase the bride. Okay? In most of the cultures around Israel, it was the other way around. The bride's father would pay a dowry to the groom or to the groom's family to take the gal off their hands, I'm guessing. I don't know. But the groom's father would go, in, in uh, Jewish culture, the groom's father was the one who would go and he would pay a price for the bride. Now, some of you guys are already connecting some dots inside of this, right? John 3.16 is an incredibly valuable verse here. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son. He paid a price. Who paid the price? Right? A lot of times we think about the price being paid as it was Christ that paid the price for us, and he did, but ultimately it was the gift of God, the Father. It was, it was his gift. He gave his son to cover the cost of our sin. So the mohar was the price that was paid for the bride. Okay, 
that would establish then the engagement. The engagement. Now, the engagement could be short. It also could be long. For instance, if your son was maybe six years old, you could even arrange a marriage for him, maybe with someone who's maybe four or, or something. And when they got old enough, then they could get married, but they would be engaged until then. The idea of this engagement or the betrothal process was so legally binding in Jewish culture that it was as if they were married, they just didn't function as married couples. If you wanted to not get married or to break it off, you would actually have to get a divorce. This is the very reason why Joseph, even he was betrothed to Mary, when he found out that she was pregnant, she was with child, he, it says he sought or thought about divorcing her. Like, I, if I can't marry her, I have to divorce her. But he, he didn't want to dishonor her, so he was going to divorce her quietly, it says. And then the angel came and said, no, 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 you, sh you should marry her. She's quite the gal. Um, so in that, in that process, right, if you were engaged to be married, if you're betrothed to one another, you are legally bound to one another. You are now set apart for one another. You were set apart. Now, we've talked about that word set apart over and over and over in this series, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about being set apart, not, not contaminated by the world. The Passover, right? That first cup is that cup of sanctification. It's about being set apart unto the Lord. In the uh, Feast of first fruits, you, you went and you tied up and bound that first part of your crops and you set it apart unto the Lord. It was the Lord's and the Lord's alone. In marriage, when you entered into that betrothal period, you were set apart unto your spouse. You may not be married yet, but you were, you were engaged as if you were married. I remember when, when Tasha and I first got married, or when we first got engaged, we were driving home. And I said, Tasha, I want you to know, it's as if we're married in my mind. I'm not... I'm not now, I didn't ask you to marry me so that we could try it out for the next 10 months and see if I'm going to follow through with the wedding, you know, 10 months down the road. I want you to know I'm committed to you. And one of the things that I, I remember when I was young, kind of throwing out the word, I love you, even though I had no clue what that meant, right? But then I remember reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says, true love never fails. If it's real, genuine love, then there's no way I'm giving up on this thing. There's no way I'm walking away from it. If I really love her, it doesn't quit, even when it's hard, right? I'm committed to her. And so uh, we basically said, look, until we're married, but in my heart, this is the same commitment. I ask you to marry me because I love you. And I'm going to follow that through even to the wedding and beyond, okay? Well, so it was in the Jewish culture. When you would get engaged, you were set apart to each other. And, and that was all the way, no matter how long it took to get to the wedding. When you were betrothed, often then a gift was given. It was called the matan. This gift was given from the groom. The groom would give a gift to the bride. It was called the matan. And it became a part of the bride's property. It became her possession, and she would then bring that gift with her into the marriage. All right? 
Now, this is important. We're going to tie this to Pentecost here in a moment. But if you know what happened in Pentecost, just know there was a gift given to us. The bride, right? You figuring that out? Come on. The betrothal ultimately then is this engagement. And once that engagement had been agreed to, the couple then was set apart for one other engagement. The groom then would return to his father's house and he would begin to build a room at his father's estate, build a room for his bride. Many times it was called the bride's chamber. He would build that room connected to his father's house. Are we, are we are you hearing me here? Jesus says this, John 14, verses 2 and 3. He's telling his disciples, I'm going to have to go. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm leaving, right? We are now betrothed. We are engaged. But now I've got to go. I'm going to where? He's going to his father's house. And at his father's house, lots of rooms. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And what am I going to do? I'm going to come again, and I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm going to bring you to the Father's house. Here's what would have happened. The groom would return to the Father's house, build a room for he and his new bride. The father of the groom was then responsible for preparing all the wedding festivities. And he would decide, the father would decide, when everything was ready for the groom to go and receive his bride and bring her to the wedding. Whose timetable set the course of events in motion? It was the father of the groom. Now, can you imagine how eager the, the groom must have been? Right? I've got the little room prepared and, and I'm already and like I know how hard it was. We we had a 10-month engagement. It was horrible. It was horrible. Many times, how many times did I, I try to talk you into going to the JP? It's like, let's just go. We'll do the wedding, but I can't take it anymore. Let's go. My dog, I, I've trained my dog. I have this yellow lab. He's a he's a retriever. And uh, so I have trained him. He has to sit next to me, and then I will throw this little duck dummy out into my yard, and I, he cannot go until I say, get it. And I'll throw it out there, and he, every ounce of, you know, he sees it fly out there, and there's every ounce of him, he just shakes, because he wants to go so bad, but he knows he can't, and he's waiting for the master to give him the word. And so then I'll tease him a, a few things. I'll, I'll be like, uh, see ya. Uh, go down the town, you know, I, I, I like, and he always, he flinches, like, he's like, he's just ready to go, and then I'll say, get it, and then boom, he's gone, like, he can't wait to go, I'm imagining that's exactly what the groom must have been like, waiting for his father to give the word, I just can't wait, Jesus says this about 
Because the disciples go, when is the time going to come? When is this all going to happen? When is the wedding going to happen? And what does Jesus say? Well, I don't even know. The Father knows. And when the Father says it's all ready to go, he'll give the word and I'll come and get you. When the word is given, then comes what's called, well, what we would call biblically, the harpazo. This is the word that is used in the scripture to talk about the rapture, okay? The idea of the church being snatched away. If you read the Left Behind uh, books or the movies, right? It's this idea that we will be snatched away. The word actually snatched away violently, like it's like quick, boom. The, The groom would go to snatch away his bride. When the word would come, he would gather his friends. He would uh, then begin a procession to go and receive his bride unto himself. They would often blow trumpets and horns, signaling that they were coming. Do you know why? Because the bride then would know it's time to go. And all the little last minute preparations, and she would begin to get herself ready and make sure that when the bride got there, he didn't have to stand outside for an hour and a half waiting for her to do her makeup. Right? So when when the bride got there, the or when the groom got there, the bride was ready to go, her and her party, and they would join together and they would then travel to the father's house, the groom's father's house. And there they would engage in the wedding. Now, here's the interesting thing about the wedding. There are a lot of things inside of a, a Jewish wedding. I want to keep it relatively simple for our time together. But one of the key parts of the wedding was the reading of the ketubah. The ketubah was a written, what they would call a marriage contract. It was a written agreement of the covenant between the groom and the bride. Now, most of the time for, for in our culture, we don't, write it down. We, we recite it. We say it out loud to each other. You know, we, we say our vows, but it was important in Jewish culture to write it down. They would write it down. All of the things that the groom promises and pledges to do, all the things that the bride pledges and promises to do. And all these things would be written down. And then they would be read at the wedding ceremony. It was a review of that covenant, and that reading was not just for the bride and the groom. It was for everyone in attendance, because when it would be read, then it became a public document. This now is, I've made this covenant, this pledge, not only to you, but to the community, and all of the community and the people that were there would know that you've entered into the covenant with that person. That way, if if you're a guy and then you're down at the local, you know, uh, diner and you start flirting on the gals there, the community would come alongside and say, no, 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 you've made a covenant. I, I, you, it's, it's written. It's not just words. You've actually put it onto a document and it's something you committed to live by. And they would hold you to that marriage contract. Okay. 
So it would be read in the presence of everyone. Both parties would then enter into an agreement and and, uh, some different things would happen inside of that that would acknowledge that we are entering into that agreement together. And then they would go celebrate a feast. They They would culminate the whole thing with a meal together, signifying that it was done. And this is official. And we are now celebrating this meal that we are now unified together. It was called the wedding feast. Remember, it, at a wedding, wedding feast, this is where Jesus does his very first miracle, his very first one. And because all of the arrangements would have been, uh, would have been responsible for the father of the groom, right? They ran out of wine that day, and all oh, and the dishonor that could have come to the father's household if if a miracle didn't happen there's a there, I mean, man there's just so much here and we don't have time to do it all so let's let's keep going hopefully you are starting to put all the pieces together and hopefully maybe even you are starting to see how Exodus 24 actually connects in the Jewish understanding that this was actually an event of a covenant agreement that they made with God and they entered and sealed the deal with a meal together. I want you to go there. I'm going to I'm going to open up here Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel finally make it to they are led by what? The angel of the Lord who some would suggest could be Jesus. That's just a little side note. And they're led where? Out of their bondage. They're snatched away. They were brought out. A price was paid for them, right? And they are led then to the Father's house, to Mount Sinai. This is where God lives. God, Jesus brings them there, and there they are at the base of Mount Sinai, and God begins to speak to them. For the Jews... That took 50 days, okay? From the, from the Passover to when they left Israel, they went through the Red Sea, they then entered into the wilderness, and they made their way to Mount Sinai. They count out all of that and get to 50 days. On the 50th day, what they would see in Exodus chapter 24 is exactly what they would have experienced on the 50th day. This is what they're celebrating. That 50th day. In in chapters 19, we see how they get there. Chapter 20 is is what? Anybody know? It's the Ten Commandments. The next three chapters, 21, 22, 23, are all more laws and instructions. And this is read to everyone as they gather at God's house. Listen, and let's read this together. Keep in mind this idea of the process of the Jewish marriage, okay? Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, I think I'm going to name my next kid Abihu, uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord 
and what? Well, the rules. This is the, this is the framework of the covenant. This is what God has given us. Okay, so he gives them all of the words of the Lord, all the rules, and all the people answered with one loud voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What did the people agree to? They agreed to enter into the covenant with God. God lays out the covenant contract and the people go, it's read publicly and the people say, we'll do it. We're in, right? And Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord, right? Now this is, a, this is written. He rose early in the morning, built an altar on the foot of the mountain, the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. That is to set it apart and purify it, right? Make, make sure that it's, this is representing God, right? God is completely committed to this process. Then, he, then Moses took uh, half the blood, he put it on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, right? All the words he wrote down. What did he do? He read it out loud to the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. We are entering into this covenant with God. And God, and then Moses took the blood of the other half of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. It is to help them know you are now set apart in this marriage relationship. The covenant you have entered into has now been sealed. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So then what do they do after they make this covenant? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And God did not kill them. That's it's not what it says exactly, but that's basically what it says. That God did not lay his hands on them. And... Uh, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He didn't kill them. And they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. They had a feast on this 50th day with God. And what was it? It was their wedding day. It was where, right, the betrothal process was over. They were in covenant with God already because of the Passover. The price had been paid. They had been redeemed. They had been brought out. But then they've been snatched away and brought to God's house, finally, to get married. That journey of 50 days was that betrothal period where they had to wait. Interesting thing inside of, of your notes here. The bride and even the groom had to live in a constant state of readiness. They never knew when the hour was going to come. Israel didn't know when their redemption was going to come. God ultimately brought it to pass. They didn't know how long it was going to take to get to the father's house, but ultimately it's 50 days they got there. They didn't know, right, when, the, when everything was going to come down, but on that 50th day, God gave them the law and they entered into a covenant with God to keep it and they became set apart unto him. Every time they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks, they were celebrating 
the fact that God had given them the law, the bread of life, a covenant meal together, because they knew that ultimately it was God's invitation to them to be his people. Now, if you're following along and kind of paying attention, you've already started to see how all of this Feast of Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks, how this prophetically fits into this idea of marriage and ultimately the idea of Jesus and his imminent return for his church. Many times we like to think that like we're already married to Christ, but actually we're not yet married. We're just engaged. We're set apart for him. We're in the betrothal stage. The price has been paid for us, right? The father gave his son, paid the price to redeem us. We are then set apart. We are his. The beautiful thing that happens is that the son himself gave us a gift as his bride. And that is exactly what happens on the Feast of Weeks, on the Pentecost. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So the people of uh, the Israelites are there. They're hearing the gospel. Many of them come and say, okay, so what do, what do we need to do to be saved? How can we enter into this marriage covenant with God? How can we do that? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Right? This is the marriage ceremony now. Repent, be baptized. Symbolic, this betrothal period. You are coming through the water. Are you, are you, are you following any of this stuff? Exodus, what happened? They were, they were, the price was paid. They were brought out of Egypt, and then God took them through the water and destroyed and set them free and, and released them completely. No longer to have to worry about the sins of the past. Right? They came through the water. They were baptized. And so what does Paul, Peter say? Repent, be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then what? You will receive the gift. The gift of what? The gift from the groom. The gift of the father was the son, but the gift from the groom is the spirit. It's the gift of the spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that we have been sealed have sealed us, and he gave us the spirit in our hearts as what? As a pledge, as a promise, right? It's like, I, I promise myself to you. I pledge myself to you. That's the engagement idea. This gift of engagement, it's the Holy Spirit. It is our possession. The Holy Spirit is our possession as those who follow Jesus Christ, and it is what we bring to the marriage with us, because there's coming a time when the Son is going to come for his bride. Jesus said that he is preparing a place for us, and when God gives him the word, he is going to come for his church. And there's going to be a harpazo, a snatching away. And Jesus will take us to the Father's house. And guess what's going to happen there? Well, we can read it in Revelation chapter 19. The church is in heaven, God's house. And then this is said, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. It's wedding day. 
and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage banquet of the Lamb. If you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have entered into that covenant relationship with God, you are, you're engaged. And God will give you the gift of his Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a gift, a possession for you, to bless you, to strengthen you, to keep you going. There's coming a day when the marriage is going to happen. Man, I can't wait for that. Can you? I hope you're... You're not hoping that's a long ways away because no good bride that loves her husband, loves that future groom, right? Goes, man, I hope he doesn't come for a long time. <laughs> Don't love this world. It's nothing compared to the joy that is to come. I'm going to have the band come out and we're going to close with the final song, but I do want you to know as we talk about the, the returning king. The Bible says that when Christ does come, there will be some that will be ready, but there will be many who get left behind. Many who thought they had lots of time or that it wasn't that important or that loved the world and all of its things more than they loved the groom. There's a song that came out in the 80s. Some of you guys are 80s, the 60s. Some of you guys may remember, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. I'm telling you guys, the return of Jesus Christ is as close as it's ever been. In fact, when I look at some of the stuff that's happening in our world, I wonder how it can even be tomorrow or the next day. I told somebody this week, I said, our world is pregnant right now with the end times. So many things that Jesus said, this will be the sign. It will be the, the birth pangs. We're seeing it all over. I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to encourage you. If you are a member of the church, if you consider yourself someone who has engaged themselves to Jesus Christ, then you and I have to be ready. Because what does it say in Revelation? It says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Well, what does that look like? It means we set ourselves apart. We're not prostituting with the world. We're not continuing on in the, the evil, wicked, sinful, you know, desires of the flesh. But yet we're set apart unto him and we're looking eagerly for his return. We are called as those who are his bride to begin to purify our garments. What does that mean? It says the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It means that as a church, we need to be living righteously and doing the right things, serving one another, loving one another, not fighting and not bickering and not pointing out each other's faults, but encouraging one another and supporting one another and, and being a part of 
giving life into the world like the bride of Christ should. Because I hope when he comes, he finds this church ready for his coming. That's my prayer, that we are ready and waiting. Our lamps are trimmed. We are, we are stocked with oil because we know that his coming is worth waiting for. So there he had bowed and I closed. I want to ask you today, are you ready? Are you ready? There may be some of you who today, you need to step into that covenant relationship with God. We know that Christ is inviting every single one to step into that marriage relationship, to be engaged with him, to repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and then to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. But if you've not been doing that, if you've not set yourself apart on him, if you've not agreed, you've been given the word, I'd encourage you today to make the decision to follow him. If you need to do that, and you'd like to today, I want to invite you just to slip up your hand and say, I need to follow Jesus. I need to be right with him. You just slip it up and I'll see it. I see those hands. Are there any others? I see, I see those hands. So, Father, you've seen all those who've raised their hand to you. Who said, Lord, I just need to set myself apart and prepare my heart to be your bride. And, Father, for those of us who are also already in the church, part of the bride of Christ, may we be pure and holy. May we have our eyes open, longing for you, eager to know you. For those who have set themselves apart, I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Fill us, God, with your gift, your spirit, that it might be our possession that we walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And that the fruit of that spirit would well up in us, that that fruit would be our possession that we can bring to the wedding. The fruit of a relationship with you. So God, we exalt you today and we thank you for all that you are doing in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as well? Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started Plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.